I find your lack of faith disturbing. It's Manson Mitchell on the weekend with Gary Manson, Suzanne Mitchell. A double shot of good conversation with great guests to power up your day. Manson Mitchell, you're on the air. Thank you, Eric Kramer. Hi, everybody. Happy Easter weekend to you. Happy Passover to you, wherever you may be. I'm Gary Mance. I'm Suzanne Mitchell. Together, we are Manson Mitchell in your ears for the hour, and we are ably joined of a Saturday, just about every Saturday, by an excellent producer whose name is Nathan Miller, but we like to call him Nathan Detroit. Nathan, Nathan, Nathan Detroit. Good morning and happy Easter weekend to you, Gary and Suzanne. And hey, have you jumped on that Tampa Bay Rays bandwagon yet? Not yet, but I heard about it and I don't even know what it's about. What, have Somebody they lost a game lost yet me. or what's the deal? They have not lost a game yet. They are the only undefeated team in all of MLB right now. I think, okay. 7-0. They have been trying to continue a late arriving tradition in the Tampa Bay area, being a city of champions. When Suzanne and I moved here in 2011, moved to Sarasota, we're in their market, of course. And I'm telling you, there was not much to celebrate. Tampa Bay Rays were terrible. They'd been to a one (laughs) World Series, that's true. But they were lousy. And the Tampa Bay Lightning hockey team was a joke. There and, since and not then, much to say for the football team either. Yeah. yeah, I mean, in the pre-Tom Brady era, there wasn't a whole lot to celebrate, though they yep. won one Super Bowl. There, uh, we don't. I don't care, even though. And I found a wordy way of saying that I don't care about Tampa Bay sports so much, Tom Brady or not. I retain an affection for the franchises of Seattle. My heart's still there. I consider Seattle to be my spiritual homeland. And when I think about a, a hockey team. 20 years. Suzanne knows this. She was tired of my belly aching. I used to ask, how can they go there? 20 years now, I've been thinking about this, and the NHL, which would have a gold mine in the Seattle market, can't manage to put a franchise there. And then along came the Kraken. And my understanding, Nathan, is that the Kraken has a legitimate shot of being in the playoffs in their second year of existence. Uh, they actually are in the playoffs now, yes, at least from what I it. see. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Tampa Bay Lightning, they're going to have another force to reckon with. Well, very good. And and the Lightning, of course, are not at the top at this point. Oh, uh, I don't follow Bruins hockey, are. so. Oh, yeah, I know. At well, least you we, have one team to cheer for in the playoffs. Uh, apparently. If there is a, uh, and we'll just wrap, we'll put a bow on this by saying, uh, if there is a hockey David, then the Boston Bruins are Goliath. So gather yep. ye pebbles while ye may, because yep. uh, the Bruins just look like they're indomitable. Yeah, they do. They do. So that's what we do on a Saturday. We yak about sports, and here we it's it's the we day before Easter. There's show, something more we... important tomorrow. Yeah, certainly. That's right. Of cultural significance around the world for a very long time. Brunch. What else am I talking about? (laughs) So uh, with all of this going on, Suzanne and I thought the best thing we can do is to bring our friend, Reverend Michael Bogar, back because he is a deep 
thinker. He articulates his thoughts beautifully, and he keeps an open mind. That's the trifecta we wanted for today's show, and all in one person. All in one person. Reverend Michael Bogar earned his bachelor's degree in biblical studies in 1977, his Master of Divinity from Northwest Baptist Theological Seminary in 1982, his Master of Theology degree from Trinity Divinity School in 1983, and his Master's degree in the Humanities and Depth Psychology from Pacific Graduate Institute. Reverend Bogar integrates mythology, theology, personality, personal spirituality, practical philosophy, and depth psychology into the soul-making journey through this world. His website is michaelbogar.com, which we'll be sure to give out once again before the end of the hour. But we are pleased once again to be talking with our friend from Seattle, who we have met in person, of course, many times, Michael Bogart. Glad to have you with us today, Michael. It's good to see you guys again, literally here on Zoom and hear your voices. Yes, 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 yes. We we initially, and, and Gary says there's a lot for us to talk about, but when we were talking initially about this particular weekend and we said, oh, we need to have Michael on, we need to have Michael on. We were looking at Easter and the fact that it is a spring equinox pagan holiday. And how did that whole mishmash get all put together with all of these religions celebrating a whole bunch of spring things? And we thought we would get you on to talk about uh, Ishtar, the goddess of fertility, eggs, and everything Easter. We'll start there and we'll we'll launch and we'll get into a bunch of other things as well. So anything you want to say about that? Oh, wow. Uh, where, where do we start? Um, yeah, yeah. The answer to your question is yes. There's lots of things I want to say. Help me get started here. What do you want to start with? Well, Gary was talking about <clears throat> the assimilation and also the uh, appropriation of various mythologies and holidays through the year. Now, my understanding, because I actually did a little research for you today, I just didn't sit back and wait for you to do all the heavy lifting. All right. I went online and I was looking at the earliest deity in written evidence was Inanna, which became Ishtar. And that was in cuneiform writing in the Near East. And mm -hmm. and that oldest, earliest deity had to do with fertility. And Ishtar was that, that goddess of war and sexual love. And, uh, and from there, it seems like that whole idea got spread around and put into different names in different places. And when the, the uh, Romans went into uh, London and took over England. The, the pagans and the, and the Romans and everybody had to kind of work with each other on all of these holidays. Right. And all yeah. of these people. Yeah. It's, um, you know, it's a really complex topic, but probably for me, the, the best way to break it down is there's kind of two approaches to the, the history of religion. Uh, I guess, history in gen general. One is linear, and that is the idea that these gods and goddesses and all these different rituals, et cetera, sort of evolved through time from one group of people to the next. Um, the other view of history is more of an archetypal, 
which suggests that these gods and goddesses are universal patterns of consciousness that exist in the you know, what the Hindus call Atman sphere, from which we get our term atmosphere, um, that realm of invisible ideas, Neoplatonists and etc. That view suggests that these ideas in the gods and goddesses are available to all humans at all time. In other words, they're accessible through universal consciousness. So it's not a matter of copying. I mean, people may be influenced by a group that came before them, but that influence just evokes what is already present in consciousness. It doesn't like, oh, we invented this and you've taken it from us. So that's kind of a nutshell approach to I think the two main ways of looking at it are our evolution um, sort of fixed mindedness in this culture looks at the linear and, and says, well, they, you know, they borrowed them or appropriated them from each other. But my position is more archetypal. It says, hmm, there was some borrowing, but the borrowing, it's a little bit like math. I mean, you don't say that the second generation appropriated math from the previous generation. Math is universal and available to all people. So in that view, math and myth are similar in an archetypal view and that their eternal idea is always accessible. I, I think about Christmas <clears throat> being that that combination of what I call secular and religious. So you have your uh, your Christianity, birth of Christ, child, plus uh, Santa Claus and the gifts. And, and yeah. somehow that's all come together. I look at Easter the same way yeah. where you have your religious connotation and you have your um, your Easter basket full of uh, colored eggs. Right. And, and, and so I, I asked myself, you know, how did that all come together? So is it just a matter of kind of disparate groups coming together and, and agreeing that they're each going to have a little part of it? I, I think that's one way to state it. Um, for me, it's from an archetypal. An archetype, you know, just to refresh, arche means beginning or original. Type means print or pattern. So an archetype is an original pattern, a kind of blueprint. And gr different groups of people, as you say, disparate groups, will access certain aspects of those original patterns or archetypes, and then they will bring them into the culture in the form of, you know, Inanna, uh, Asherah, the ancient Mesopotamians, Christians with Easter, um, you, as you say, secular with Easter bunny. So an archetypalist will look at all these different ideas that are related and ask, what's the central theme there? What are they all accessing? And generally, generally around this Easter theme, it's life. I mean, Ishtar is the goddess of life. Sometimes it's called fertility, but it's life. It's sexuality. It's the reproduction of life. Same thing with Easter. Jesus in, in the resurrection um, is coming back to life and giving life to people who place their reliance on him. Um, you know, the more secular stuff, and, and if we want to get into it, I will argue that there's no such thing as as secular and sacred. There's just religion. It's all religion, but that's another topic altogether. But they all access the same archetypal patterns and then enculturate it in different symbolic forms. 
enculturated in different symbolic forms. And that quite often shows up as religious belief, articles of faith, and yeah. the symbols of that faith. But let me approach this from a bit broader perspective <clears throat> just to make one point. Cultural appropriation isn't anything new. It isn't that, no. I'll use a, a tiny example. It isn't a... Uh, it isn't Bo Derek wearing cornrows in the famous movie Ten. There, it's and that's a form of cultural appropriation. And you, if you go to social media, even that rather historical reference will come up. But let's go deeper into history, Michael. People talk about Greco-Roman culture, right? And if the Greeks, the ancient Greeks, from their perspective, deep in antiquity, if they could speak with a collective voice, they might say something like, you talk about Greco-Roman culture, we were fine with it when it was just Greco culture. Right. But you know, the people from over yonder came in and they appropriated us in a big way and said, we own this now. And they fashioned a religion that uh, maybe the word is syncretic, that they took different elements in order to establish a religion in a way that might seem foreign to American ears because our constitution does not permit us to establish a state religion. But in ancient Rome, if they said it was three o'clock when it was actually four o'clock, it was three o'clock. And so this idea of appropriation for purposes of dominance and spreading your own ideas about reality is something that belongs to the powerful who history has shown get to be the ones writing history. Okay. And with that being the case, if you're an individual with differing beliefs, what do you do? You can point to, you can look anywhere in history and you will find people who are raging against the proverbial machine there and doing things their way, but they do it with a certain amount of risk because we're all aware of the terrors of history and what happens to individuals who stand against the collective. Right. And again, to me, there's a big difference between a linear approach to history, which is most of us have been enculturated in that view. So we assume this idea of history evolving like links in a chain being hooked one after the other. I don't. I mean, I can see some validity to that. But for me, it's archetypal. Again, I'll go back to myth or language. Um or, or mystical experiences, those are not appropriated. We could say, oh, well, the Greeks and the Romans and the Mesopotamians had mystical experiences, and I'm having one today, so I guess I must have appropriated it from those people. No, that, that begs the question, where did those people appropriate it? And an archetypal perspective has an answer. It says those ideas, those experiences, again, math and grammar, the rules of grammar and syntax, uh, mystical experiences, mythologies, they're not appropriated as much as they are evoked from consciousness. And, and often it's another culture that evokes them and they'll take a little different form, but they're not, it's not like they stole them or pilfered them from the group before them. Um, our consciousness operates at a certain level and it's always looking for the big ideas that move all humans, have moved all humans throughout history. It allows a lot of room for interpretation, Michael, and I call that a good thing. It is. 
someone you would have studied in your vast learning, you're quite aware of the theologian Paul Tillich. And mm -hmm. he is credited with the, the concept and certainly the phrase, God as the ground of our being. Well, right. if you have the ground of your own, that's where if you're, if the God, God is ground of your being, that's where you're standing. And it becomes the vantage point that turns into a cosmological perspective. If God is the ground of all being, you cannot be separated from the ground of your being, despite what someone, perhaps being judgmental, might say if you do not share the common view. Yes, and, and what I found with a lot of this so-called cultural appropriation is the, the, the human psyche wants to dominate. I don't care if it's each of us as an individual or a group of individuals. We're always looking at the, the collective. Oh, it's the, the collective that dominates. It's well, well, they're individuals that are, are in that collective. So typically what we do is we find our perspective and we want to dominate with it, whether it's in a marriage or in a government. And as a result, you'll have pagans, for example. I've, I've noticed this over the years, those who identify themselves as pagans, and I suppose I was in that category for a time, will say, well, you know, the Christians appropriated this stuff from us, and we were the originators of Ishtar, et cetera, et cetera. And then I've been part of the Christian group, and they will do the same thing. They'll say, well, you know, Easter is the resurrection and we're superior to this group. The pagans are inferior. So it's like human history to me is a, just a group of people who continually consider themselves superior one to the other and then try to dominate through their symbols. And I don't care if it's Republicans versus Democrats or Marxists versus capitalists. At this point, I'm not putting a value on either of those groups or any of those groups, although I have my personal opinions, but I just see it as a universal that human beings want to dominate and they'll use whatever means they can to dominate. It's not one group is worse than another necessarily. It's just our mode of operation. Is that a mode of operation uh, just survival? Like, you know, <laughs> back to the caveman days where, you know, I, I either get to, you know, kill my adversary or they get to kill me. And the one that uh, does the killing, that's the right one. I mean, is it it's still just a, a matter of combativeness? And well, that's, and, yeah. See, I mean, that's, again, going back to the linear thing, our evolutionary right. mythology, and by mythology, I don't mean it's false, but our evolutionary right. mythology, which we have all been immersed in or baptized in, looks at the caveman and does this sort of linking the chain of a linear set of events that has led us to this survival mode. Well, switch gears to an archetypal perspective. You know, Jung came out and said, the purpose for this evolution of consciousness is just that it is to evolve consciousness. So what we're calling survival through struggle and fight is really the methodology for human beings to become conscious. It's through conflict that latent unconscious material comes into consciousness. So when the Christian and the pagan, let's just make it practical, face off in a debate, you can, in a linear perspective, say, well, one's trying to dominate the other to prove they're right and the other one's wrong. Well, that's true to some extent. But in a larger focus, an archetypal focus, each of them is in the process of becoming conscious. And it is through that dia, logos, through the words, that their buttons are being pushed. And they are, when we're in political, religious, cultural debates, 
And the purpose of those buttons being pushed is to reveal the puniness of our consciousness and to make room for more consciousness to come through that conflict. I'm really glad you used that word uh, puniness because in with all the various uh, authors and people that Gary and I have talked to and, and experts in, in a wide variety of fields, one of the things that seems to be said repeatedly is the expansion of our consciousness puts us less in an us versus them as it moves us into a we situation where you have differing points of view and differing perspectives, but it is all part of the whole. And and so it, it seems as though conflict ends up being on the, on the, uh, on the scale of uh, small mindedness whereas inclusion ends up being more on a scale of evolving consciousness to be able to include everything and everyone rather than trying to um, you know, separate people out. Does that make sense? It does. And again, I, I see that as a necessary truth. And I would add that I personally, I don't see small-mindedness versus inclusiveness as being on a hierarchy. They're both absolutely necessary. Until we're perfected, and I don't see that in the foreseeable future, (laughs) until we are perfected, our small-mindedness is as much an ally as our inclusiveness. We have to be small-minded to evolve because we're all small-minded. Let's face it. Who, Who is fully conscious that you know of? Um, nobody, yeah, nobody, nobody, <laughs> nobody seen it here. <laughs> well, that's right. Although a lot of us seem to think we, we are in the way we debate with people, but I don't see that pathological pattern as being, and this is something I got from James Hillman, you know, the Jung, renegade union who basically said our pathologies are what cause the soul to move forward. So I, I will not, I will not sign on with the, somehow utopian notion that we're all going to get to this inclusive place where we're all embracing one another and singing kumbaya. As long as we're imperfect, we're going to continue to bump up against each other as we ought. I know that's not a very happy new age message. I won't sell many tickets to my seminars, but that perspective I think is really neglected. Well, it's like the, uh, the uh, irritating the oyster to get the pearl. Yeah, that's an analogy um, to, you know, that, that the, when you're talking about the pathologies, we are always coming up against those things that don't fit our worldview. Right. And, and, and that's why I was saying, how do you expand your worldview to include more? Because <laughs> I think that's where the evolving consciousness it is. has to do with. And I think part of that is our definition of wholeness. And for most of my life, I've sort of adopted this notion of wholeness, meaning healed, period. Like everything is put together and Humpty Dumpty is no longer in fragment. But for me, wholeness is being able to embrace simultaneously my small-mindedness and my inclusiveness. 
Because I'll tell you right now, when I'm talking to somebody, I can act inclusive. But I've got judgments going on all the hell over my mind. And unless they can come out and we can go at it a little bit and go, you know, I really disagree with this perspective. I think it's wrong. That's my, this is my dogma. The word dogma really translated means opinion. Yeah. This is one of the worst notions in, in modern language that we think dogma means absolute certainty. The early Platonists and the Christians went to school together in Alexandria, Egypt, you know, back many, many hundreds of years ago. And they did their schooling together in these, what we today would call universities, as dogmatics. Both sides were dogmatics because they had what they called informed opinions. That's all dogma means is an informed opinion. The early church, when they formed their dogmas, said, these are our biblically informed opinions. The Neoplatonists said, these are our Platonic, the texts from Plato, informed opinions. That's our dogma. So the two dogmas would fight. And they were meant to because opinions need to come up against each other to sharpen or to bring to consciousness the people in the debate. And it's something I see going on in our culture today that really sort of concerns me is we downplay the necessity of differences. It's like we all want to get together and be inclusive and make it all one. And, and that's good. That is one dogma. But without those differences, most of us would rot in our consciousness. <laughs> it's we're oh, I, I, and when I say inclusive, I'm not talking about sameness. Uh, more, okay, more along the lines of acceptance. You know, I accept that you you see things differently than the way I do, but it it doesn't. It, if you if if you accept other versions of perspective. <clears throat> you can know your own. This is my perspective. I hear and, I know, and I know you have a different perspective, but I think of inclusiveness as accepting that somebody else looks at things differently. Yeah. And that to me, that is an ideal situation when you have two people that have that perspective, but frequently you do not. You understand what I'm saying? And I would argue that most of us that think we're inclusive may not be as inclusive as we think. I mean, it it's easy for me to put up the front. It's like, oh, I accept you, I include you. But existentially, deep down inside me, there may be some very strong judgments. Yes. That where I'm not really as inclusive as I would like to think I am. Yeah. I have a very, I mean, I saw this again when I was with more pagan or, or Christian people. They had very strong opinions about, uh, you know, toward non-Christians. Then I came over to the new, new Thought Movement many years ago, and I thought, well, finally, I'm in utopia. This is where everybody's, you know, singing songs of love and peace and inclusivity. And when I would get together with them in private, there was hatred in many of their hearts toward Orthodox Christianity. Yes, yeah. And, and, you know, they would put a disguise up and make it look like, oh, we're so inclusive. But in private, they were just as dogmatic and bigoted as the Christians I hung out with. Well said, Reverend Michael. In fact, in my experience, I haven't been in New Thought quite as long as you, but long enough to realize that even within the New Thought movement or that philosophy, religion, a way of life, right? even within that context, I met any number of people who not only had strong judgments about people not in the New Thought movement, they had strong judgments of each other. Absolutely. 
And that's the way we are. Yes. And I'm not, I'm not condoning it or encouraging it, but somehow our philosophy has to be big enough, holistic enough to embrace that as a piece of the process. Well, it's like when, when people talk about embracing your shadow side, I have a light side and I have a shadow side. I will show you my light side. I'm going to keep my shadow side kind of hidden, but yeah. you know, that some of these uh, uh, philosophers and experts will say, you know, you want to embrace all of it because even your shadow side can serve you. Yeah. You, it, so it, it's like you need both halves. You can't say, you know, oh, everything is all rainbows and unicorns all the time and everything's wonderful because that's not realistic. And as you were saying, as, as far as evolving the soul, you you need those pathologies. You need those irritations in the little oyster to move that soul forward. That's and, right. To say, you know, I I see where I was this way, and I I harmed somebody by something I said or did, and I don't want to do that again. So yeah. then my soul gets to go move forward because I will remember that wrong that I did, and hopefully not do it again. Yes, and the ideal is for that learning you're talking about to integrate itself so much into consciousness that the change is organic. In other words, it's not. I, I don't want to hurt them, it's I am no longer able to hurt them because I have changed. The transformation, the alchemy of consciousness has been so transmuted through those conflicts, through the cooking in alchemy, that it has been baked into your new consciousness as gnosis, if you will, that experience of knowing, not intellectually I shouldn't talk or, or act that way, but that at the very core of my being I've changed. Yeah, I like that. So here we are, Manson Mitchell and Reverend Michael Bogar, three irritated oysters trying to come up with a <laughs> pearl. And if we're lucky, we'll succeed. We're going to take our one and only break of this hour. Give us a couple of minutes and we'll be back with so much more to talk about here on the day before Easter and during Passover. Lots and lots to talk about and even more to think about. Thank you for tuning in. We will be right back. Hi, everybody. This is Anson Williams from Happy Days, and I'm so excited to tell you about American Road. It is the best car travel magazine in the world. They have the most fantastic adventures detailed in each magazine with all your itinerary. We could just jump in the car with your family and have the most fabulous adventures you've ever had in your life. Please get a copy of American Road and start your own adventure. I'm Gary Mance. And I'm Suzanne Mitchell. It's time for the 2023 KKNW Listener Survey. Please log on to 1150kknw.com after our show and complete the listener survey. Your responses will ensure quality program like Manson Mitchell continues on this station. As an added incentive, you will have a chance to win round-trip tickets for two on the Victoria Clipper to beautiful Victoria, B.C. Plus a $100 gift certificate to Famous Dave's Restaurant. On behalf of KKNW, Manson Mitchell, and all of the fine shows on our station. Thank you for taking the time to help us improve your listening experience. You've got to play to win, and one lucky person's name will be drawn on April 23 for the trip. Log on to KKNW right after Manson Mitchell and fill out the survey. Complete contest rules can be found at 1150kknw.com. 
staying connected with Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell is easy. Just go to manceandmitchell.com for the latest info on topics and guests. Friend Gary Mance and Suzanne Mitchell on their Facebook pages and like the Mance and Mitchell show page at facebook.com slash Mitchell. If you're on Twitter, share a follow with Gary and Suzanne at Mance Mitchell. Join Gary and Suzanne Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 a.m. for an unusual show that covers everything from personal growth to the paranormal. Here's an amazing act. Here's a tremendous act. Here's a startling act. The amazing, the thrilling, the greatest, spectacular, incredible, exciting, wonderful, world fame, most unusual novelty act. The home of the A-Team of Alternative Talk is ManceAndMitchell.com. Heard right here on Alternative Talk 1150 AM or streaming live from your computer anywhere. Terry Loving wants to help you with your online marketing challenges right now. She has several courses she is giving away to help you get your business working for you online. Yes, giving away. WordPress websites are her specialty, yet her technical skills go way beyond that. Check out her blog at terryloving.com or email her directly at terry at terryloving.com. That's terry at terryloving.com. On Friday, Manson Mitchell welcomed back Caroline Heldman for another discussion of today's news in a nation where the current of controversy is always running. On Saturday, Bill Champlin joins us for an hour of divination that we call Time for Tarot. And we'll be taking your calls for mini readings. Bringing you mastery and mystery since 2007. We are Manson Mitchell, Friday and Saturday mornings at 10 on Alternative Talk AM 1150. Alternative Talk 1150, here to uplift your day. Welcome back to Manson Mitchell and our very special guest this hour, Reverend Michael Bogar. Uh, Michael, if people would like to get in touch with you, learn more about your work, what you do, maybe see you in person somewhere, how would they do all that? Yeah, I have a website. It's just um, michaelbogar.com, um, and it has most of that information there and a lot of stuff that I've written and, and been published, etc., so that's probably the best way. And if you're interested in keeping up Facebook, just Michael Bogar, you can contact me through Facebook too. You, you've done a lot of writing. Do you have a, a newsletter or anything that people can subscribe to? Mm, yeah, I do. I haven't been putting it out as much lately with all the COVID okay. and, and just life changes we've been going through here. Okay. But, yeah. All right. Well, michaelbogard.com is a good place to go to find out more about our guest today if you would like to uh, see what he's all about. We like him. He's been on our show forever. <laughs> and will continue <laughs> to be on as long as we're around. Uh, I'm curious, Michael, about the ways in which people come to terms with their own lives, particularly as regards meditation, forms of meditation. While we were on the break, Suzanne showed you a coloring book because we're on Zoom and we can see each other. Suzanne showed you her form of meditation, which involves uh, the TV being on. She's not particularly paying attention. She, instead, she's working in a coloring book that requires very close attention so that you stay within the lines in order to make these beautiful, recognizable shapes. And mm -hmm. some people walk for meditation. Some people sit in a certain posture for meditation. Suzanne likes to color for meditation. And that it started me on a laughing jag because I can recall being, well, I was not yet a teenager, 
but I recall being a parochial school kid there in Southern California. And when the subject matter turned to something dull, like geography, and I'm hearing all these details about places I'm not likely to ever visit. And if I want to look at them, I can subscribe to National Geographic. <laughs> or yeah, it might be art class. I can't draw a straight line, but I can sure do some damage to my <clears throat> peachy. You remember the peachies? Oh, we yeah. all had as kids the peachy, and they would have uh, illustrations of uh, a young woman playing tennis. And right. she's smacking the tennis ball, and I thought, well, that doesn't look right. So I would turn the tennis ball into this big bushy head. Yeah. So she's knocking a severed head in a serve and volley match. There, yep. that's what. Then there's the guys running a relay race where they've got the baton. I thought, well, that needs to be turned into a stick of dynamite, right. which would right. it would explain why nobody wants to take the baton from the guy. Right, right. They're running. Yeah, that's right. They should be running in the opposite direction. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And I, I did all that. I can remember back in the day because I wanted to mentally be in another place. Right. I wanted to do that because I felt tranquil when I did that. I yep. could I could see the comedy of life. I would I would tend to see even at an early age the comic underpinning to all of this chaos in human life and on some level that did something for me I, or I wouldn't have continued doing it. Yep. But we all have our ways of touching the archetypes of accessing material that causes us to look not only at the larger meaning of life but the meaning of our own lives. Yep. Yep. Yeah, a big a topic that has really seized me lately, and I've been doing a lot of classes and workshops on it, is the imaginal realm. Not imaginary, but imaginal. And the difference is imaginary is that ability to create in our own minds strange things or interesting things. But the imaginal realm, I think, Gary, is in part what you're referring to, is that archetypal realm that preceded this material existence. And I think our neglect of that imaginal realm in this culture has driven many of us to find, you know, we find ourselves doing things like you're talking about, drawing on the peachy or drawing between the lines or just sitting and fantasizing or being obsessed with some addiction. I think addictions are uh, an attempt to reconnect us to the imaginal realm. Um, so I've been doing a lot of classes on that lately, trying to help this, especially this this younger generation, to see that their fascination with video games and, um, you know, Netflix and all of that stuff is really an attempt to do what all religions have always done, and that is to connect to Atman sphere, uh, what Jesus called the kingdom of heaven, that imaginal realm that informs everything that is around us. And it's an organ of truth. I mean, C.S. Lewis and Tolkien and, and a number of other brilliant minds and novelists, J.K. Rowling was another one, made it very clear that the there are two organs of truth, two sides of the brain, if you will. One is that side of the brain or that organ of truth that accesses truth through the senses. It's science. Let's call it science. But there's another side that accesses truth through the imagination. Einstein recognized both of them. That you have to, he imagined traveling on a light wave before he ever came up with any sort of empirical theory or mathematical theory. So those two realms need to be engaged. And if the culture doesn't teach us how to access that imaginal realm, 
we will just find ways to go there. We definitely will find ways to go there. Suzanne, you had a point. No, I was just going to say Edison, the same, where he imagined a lot of things and then he was able to produce them scientifically in his yes. waking times. Yes, all yeah. of them. Newton, yeah. Newton spent more time meditating than he did actually working with what we call modern science. So all great scientists are capable of accessing this realm of truth with a capital T through the imagination. It's an organ of truth. And then we can often, you know, prove it, if you will, through empirical observation. But it exists in the imagination long before it ever is proved empirically. That's a great way to put it, Michael. You mentioned J.K. Rowling. Imagine what access she had. I'd love to talk to her. What yeah. kind of access she must have had to imaginal reality because... When she got started outlining the Harry Potter series, what became the Harry Potter phenomenon worldwide, was sitting as a welfare mother in Scotland at a local diner. We might call it a diner, but yeah. or sort of a place where you have yeah. coffee, tea, and a muffin, that sort of thing. And she, they were very kind to her, the proprietors, to allow her that space where I think she had one child with her as a baby. Yeah. And, she outlined Harry Potter, and then she got started with writing, with telling the story. And I've always wondered, what key did she have to turn in order to unlock which door to all the vastness of that material with which she was able, in a literary way, to create an alternate universe? Yep. Well, see, Tolkien's the same thing. Most people don't know that all of his work, Lord of the Rings and all of that, came from sitting in foxholes in World War I, being bombarded in, in, in the fear of his life. There's something about pathologizing. You know, we can call it depression, fear, anger, all this stuff we take, take drugs to get away from. And I'm, I'm not opposed to that necessarily. But it is through the pathologizing often that the portal into the imaginal realm opens through being in poverty, as Rowling was. Um, most of us, when things are going well and everything is happy, 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 we don't have to imagine anything. We just bask in the ecstasy of the moment. But when we start to go into the dark side of things and we wake up in the morning and think, oh, crap, I don't want to even get out of bed, that's when the portal to the imaginal realm typically opens. And it, it, it exposes us to truth. Tolkien created elfin um, alphabets and languages in those foxholes. So if some of us, you know, could start to frame this notion that when we're in a state of fear or panic or despair, that it is actually an opportunity to see through into realms that we could never see through without those experiences. And I'm not encouraging it. That is the despair. But when they when it comes to see it as purposeful, you know, soul making is an, the term I use from John Keats, who had nursed two family members through their deaths to tuberculosis. And he, he himself was dying of tuberculosis when he wrote a letter to his brother in America and said, I deem this world to be the veil of soul making. That we have been put here as little sparks of intellect of the divine in order to go through a thousand necessary sufferings in order to make a big soul. I, I just think of the, uh, on Abbey Road, that, that song by the Beatles, Carry That Weight. That's, yeah. 
Speaking of myth-making and, and tapping into archetypes and, and being willing to go farther than most people will go, you can look at the Beatles. Yep. You remind me of, of the one uh, piece of an interview that George Harrison did. It might have been in the Beatles anthology. And, and he said when he and the Beatles were in San Francisco, might have been their last concert date when they were finishing with their touring phase. Mm-hmm. Didn't last long. Us. I'm sorry? It did. That didn't last long, the touring phase. But yeah, go ahead. That's right. It did. And uh, George talked to a scientist or or was contacted by one. Long story short, he got to look through a microscope provided by this scientist to see what LSD looked like to get it closer because George was using it quite a bit. And what he found was, as he described it, something that looked like a piece of rope. Mm. And he said to himself... I don't want that in my brain. Yeah. He made a conscious decision to not go into the unconscious via LSD anymore. He found for himself and for many others a better way. Yeah. So you go from LSD to India and meditating and looking at Eastern philosophy and culture as a way of, shall we say, self-liberation. Yep. I always admired George for that. Yeah. And and many other teachers will say that f- from your pathologies that lead you into the imaginal realm, you you can learn to get there in more productive ways. In other words, you don't have to wait to go into depression or panic or fear or despair. You can find techniques of active imagination, which Jung really, you know, developed and um, meditation techniques, etc., painting, dancing, drawing, writing music, poetry, a thousand different ways to access that imaginal. And it actually keeps you from going into a lot of the pathologies. Because the pathologies in this view are, are there to, in, in a sense, compel us into the imaginal. So it's better to find more, <laughs> less, painful ways let's put it that way one of the when you were talking about the imaginal realm i wrote down science fiction yeah because when i when i was in college many years ago uh, i took a course on science fiction the same quarter i was taking a course on astronomy Mm. and the two were like a left hand and a right hand and 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 they used to say that science fiction oftentimes became science fact. And mm-hmm. when, when I was a, a little kid, I can remember watching the cartoons where the, the ship was going up to the moon and then landed on the moon and hit the man in the moon right in the eye. <laughs> and uh, and how that preceded us actually going to the moon. Yep. And, and then later when we had the Jetsons on, now that took some imagination to have all those flying cars around all those um condominiums mm-hmm. and um and now they do have flying cars yeah there are there are cars flying and yeah. so there's where the imagination can actually take form and it proceeds form the way you were talking about well, to me to me what you just talked about suzanne is a beautiful analogy of education good education combines both sides of the brain and this sort of move towards stem you know the science technology engineering and math mm-hmm often leaves out the humanities and mythology and the imaginal realm, and it creates almost robotic creatures without character. Mm -hmm. 
because it's that imaginal or the imagination that creates it. C.S. Lewis said, imagination gives us meaning. Science gives us facts. Imagination gives us meaning. If you do not put meaning with the facts, you end up with Hitler's. Because they will tell you not only how to think, but what to think. Right. What to think and what it means. Yes. That there's meaning to all of this factual information around us. Um, And and we do it anyway. We do it anyway. I mean, anyway, I don't want to. From a financial point of view, I had people pointing at me and saying, why would you ever be an English major? Yeah. Like that was like the silliest thing. You're never going to make any money being an English major. And as I have uh, aged, I couldn't be happier that I was an English major. Yeah. Because that I had access to so many types of imaginal things in all of the books that I read and all the writings that I participated in, either as a writer or an editor. Yeah. And, That's why Thomas Moore, you all know. Have you had Thomas Moore on your show? No. Have you tried? N- no. You should try. Anyway, Care of the Soul. Remember, yeah, like, what, three decades now, I think, since he wrote Care of the Soul? It went crazy across the nation precisely because our our current state of consciousness is all about making money. There's nothing wrong with making money, but when it becomes a sole goal <laughs> – the soul goal, the soul disappears. Yeah. You need, you need to also care for the soul as much as you need to care for the factual stuff that's going to make you money. And I find that the people, now here I am at risk of overgeneralization. I don't want to do that. I have met people I regard as friends. And when I listen to them talk about money, because they have a whole lot more of it than me, I start to wonder, how did they get so wealthy and when are they going to be satisfied? Because what I noticed, Michael, is that there are people who are wealthy by any standard, whether it's the Western world and certainly globally, you can see that they are very well off, but they act nervous. They are anxious about their pile of dough. They're afraid that they won't have enough, even though they may have another 10, 20 years to live and they have plenty of money. They're well situated, but they act afraid. And I thought it's not the money doing that. The money is a symbol. It's a unit of exchange. It has to do with one's attitude toward money and the very concept of what it means to be prosperous or wealthy. Yeah, it's there's a certain there's a certain pathos to people who are rich and nervous about their wealth. I mean, how do you even enjoy it? Right. Yeah, it's it's a balance between the left, you know, just the brain stuff, left and right brain and the material and the imaginal. If we don't have those in harmony, there will be pathology. And if that's a way, according to Jung and others, that's the way it works. The pathologies bring new consciousness. If we don't open the door to new new consciousness, the pathologies will. And probably not the kind of consciousness that you would like to have. What's that? The when you when you're saying the pathologies will determine the pathologies, it could be um, you know, poverty or illness or, you know, I've always been this way. So I think I always right. That's more of a kind of a yeah. That's a 
I think it's a little different than what I was talking about. What I'm suggesting is that the pathologies, it's like when you put your finger on the proverbial hot stove, it teaches right. you something. Right. Don't do that again. Right. So emotional pathologies in this view are baked into the cosmos to bring us to consciousness. And the, one of the gifts of pathology, which seems paradoxical, is that an illness in any part of your life has at least one effect. It will shake you out of your complacency. And if it doesn't shake you out of your complacency, you might do well to ask yourself if you're just giving up. Right. And I, I happen to personally believe in something like reincarnation. So it's like you don't have to get it right the first time through. But at some point, you know, it, it will have its effect. Karma is a <laughs> karma. Well, we know what it is. <laughs> we know what karma is. We're just interested in what it does. <laughs> forgot, forgot I was on the radio. Everyone. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thank so, you. Well, very good. We're getting ready to close our conversation. So, yep. Michael, for the sake of those who live nearby and can come and see you, do you have upcoming events, appearances, webinars, anything of the like? Yeah, I've got a couple classes coming up at uh, CSL Seattle, and um, I think one is in May, Life Purpose. We're going to do a class on you know per the purpose of life, and then a follow-up class after that, which is on active imagination, because the two work together. You know, to, The purpose of life, as Eckhart Tolle said, is A, to become conscious, two, to find your vocation, but to do both, you need to access the imaginal realm. I love that. And one of the things I want to do is to look more deeply into imaginal realm so that we can continue this conversation, Michael. Next time we you are with us and we go far afield, but we don't really lose track of the conversation because the things that we talk about have to do with soul making, crafting yeah. a life of which you can be possibly proud or certainly delighted in so that you delight in the life you are living as an ongoing process and when it comes to reincarnation if there's another chance to come back and do it differently sign me up i would i look at reincarnation aspirationally i hope it's true yeah yeah H have you guys you've probably done shows on reincarnation many times have you we done have. much work with ian stevenson is that a familiar name Yes, we are is. very familiar with yeah. them. We haven't been able to find somebody because Dr. Stevenson has passed. But right. long story short, if you want to get into that next time and reference the work of Ian Stevenson, again, sign me up. I'm all for it. And I know Suzanne loves the subject matter as well. Yeah, we, we just go, Reverend Michael Bogart. Okay. I'm sorry we ran out of time. With us, it's always running out of time until next time. All right. Thank you, guys. Thank, Thank you. you. Remember that Ostara transformed a bird into a bunny and the bunny laid the golden eggs for her festival so there you go easter egg hunt everyone easter have yourselves a great holiday <laughs>